Right. Uh, good morning again. A number of years ago, there's an author uh, named Richard Foster. Some of you know uh, about Richard Foster. A number of years ago, Richard Foster, before he was very well known, wrote a book, the title of which was Money, Sex, and Power. Money, Sex, and Power. Uh, the book's subtitle was The Challenge of the Disciplined Life. It sold a decent number of copies, uh, but after a number of years of it being out in publication, the publishers, and maybe also the author, Richard Foster, had this idea, maybe if we change the title of the book, we can sell more copies. And so they didn't do anything to the inside of the book. They didn't change any of the language chapters, words at all, but simply changed the title to The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, Christian Reflections on Money, Sex, and Power. And for some reason, that sold a whole bunch more copies. Uh, voila. There are some subjects that some people sometimes just don't want to talk about or hear about or read about, among which, of course, are politics and religion and money, sex, and power. With that as background, though, this morning I want to start with a little survey, just a one-question survey, and the question is, which of the following three topics would you most like to hear a sermon on? money, sex, or power. So everybody gets a vote. Everyone has to vote. Those are your options. Those are your choices. We're just going to raise your hands. I'm going to give you a moment to think about your response, lock in your answer, and then here we go. If you would rather hear a sermon on money, raise your hand. If you would, okay, seven. For those of you online, if you would and you, if you're online, you can vote too, in the chat. If you would rather hear a sermon on sex, raise your hand. Okay, seven also. And if you would rather hear a sermon on power, raise your hand. All right, there we go. Power is the winner. However. Just so you know, I just preached a sermon on power when we talked about King Herod and the ways that he wielded power for his own good out of fear and out of uh, subjugation of his people. In contrast to King Jesus, who relinquished power, you remember, and used what power he had and didn't give up for good and to serve others. We also talked about sex uh, in the earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when Jomo talked about lust, I talked about adultery. Uh, so in my book, we've covered sex sufficiently for now. And that leaves, therefore, this morning, drumroll please, money. I know many of you don't want to hear a sermon on money this morning. You should know that I don't want to preach a sermon on money this morning. So we're in the same boat. We're good to go. But let me encourage you, nevertheless, to stick around. Uh, let's trust that God has some things to say to us through Jesus that we need to hear about money and that we ought to embrace and consider. To that end, let's pray.
God, some things we want to hear, some things we don't want to hear, some things I want to hear, some things sometimes I don't want to hear. Some things we, sometimes we don't want our world, our worldview, our ways disrupted. We confess that, we acknowledge that, probably all of us. Uh, and yet here we are. Help us to be available to you, to your good, holy, true and truthful word. Through it, uh, open our eyes, illuminate our hearts, draw us into yourself and your life and your good eternity. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you remember that we started in on the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday of August, spent most of the fall in the Sermon on the Mount, took a brief hiatus during Advent to look at uh, chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel that leads up to the birth of Jesus. We spent the last three weeks in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. Now we're jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount as promised. Uh, a little background for those of you who weren't with us maybe during the Sermon on the Mount or refresher for those you who were, but for whom it's been, all of us, seven weeks or so. In chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing and preaching that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of the heaven or the heavens is near and therefore repent. And by kingdom of God, Jesus means the reign of God or the rule of God or the reality or the space or the relationships in which what God wills, what God wants and intends to do and to be done on earth as it is in heaven is actually done. And Jesus says that kingdom has come in a new and fresh way. It's here, it's arriving, it has arrived because the king, Jesus, has arrived as well. And with him, he brought his kingdom. His kingdom is flourishing, his kingdom is unfolding, his kingdom is evident. He talks about it, he teaches about it, he models it, he describes it. It bursts forth all around him in the gospels. And because the kingdom of God was available and accessible in a new way, Jesus called people to repent. And we talked about this word uh, for a couple of Sundays. Jesus called people to repent, which means to think differently, change one's mind, change one's thinking, change one's life, to reconsider the way that one has thought, seen things, approached things, lived things before. And Jesus talks about, and the scriptures talk about, God giving us the grace and the power through his spirit to change, to repent, to look at things differently, to reconsider. And with Jesus' guidance through that, all of that's possible. So this repentance thing is still gonna be key to where we are this morning. And then at the beginning of his so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that lots of people were blessed in a collection of statements that we know as the Beatitudes, which isn't a great name for them. Lots of people that the world didn't consider blessed and lots of people who didn't consider themselves to be blessed. Jesus declares to be blessed. He declares them to be blessed against the flow of their culture and against what they thought and what they considered themselves to be truly blessed. And Jesus said those things because, again, the kingdom of God and all of its blessings was near to them now in a way that it hadn't been before. And so he introduces to them 
and to all who will listen, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new way of going, a new and abundant kind of life. And the things that Jesus was saying and the things that Jesus would teach were so different, you remember, so different than what the people were hearing in the synagogue and from their teachers, so different than the stiff and wooden and legalistic, joyless, lifeless religion practiced by most of God's people in that day and certainly promulgated by the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, that they all accused Jesus who was doing a slightly different thing, but from the same sources, of not caring about their book, of not caring about the law, of not caring about the scriptures, of not caring about Moses, about discounting all of those things. But to that, and in response, Jesus declared, you remember, I haven't come to abolish the law that you and I all hold so dearly and in such high regard. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it to complete it, to make it complete in so many and a variety of ways, to go deeper with it, to dig deep into its real meaning, to illuminate, to shine a light into this law. And Jesus said, I have come to reveal to you a righteousness, and that was an old-fashioned technical term that they used that we could just translate the good life. I have come to reveal to you a true righteousness or abundance or good life or faithfulness that's actually better or surpasses the way of the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. This is important. And then Jesus began to go through religious law after religious law after religious law command teaching from the Old Testament, noting how the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law had cut corners and twisted their meaning and made them easy or shallow or superficial or just made them into a dead set of religious rules that they could keep and so deceive themselves into thinking that they were actually on their own good, worthy, deserving, respectful, esteemed, whatever, because of their own works, they had sort of molded the law to keep so that it was a, a sort of religion that they could keep and do. Jesus then invites them into a truer way, a deeper way, a more authentic way, an honest way that led to then and for forever what he called abundance. Even though it might be hard at times, even though it would require courage and sacrifice and humility and a soul-searching inventory, to borrow some language from uh, the 12-step movement, which Angela alluded to, it would require courage and sacrifice and humility and a soul-searching inventory and faith in the sense of trust, profound trust, but which would eventually lead to peace and hope and joy. This is all a part of Jesus' program. And through most of the fall season, we talked about uh, all of the dimensions of this better or truer way of life or righteousness or good life. And you uh, may remember, Maybe you may remember we began with the questions on August 28th. Who has the good life? Who is truly well off? Which Jesus goes on to answer. And then we went on to answer those questions from Jesus' point of view over the following months. Brings us all the way up to chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, listen to God's Word beginning at verse 19. This is the Word of God through the Son of God, Jesus he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin 
not a word we use very often, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, that word implies generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, the Greek word implies stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You remember last week we had that big throne out here reminding us that there can only be one thing on that throne, the throne of our lives. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Either you will hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. There can't be two gods in one's life. And here Matthew brings together probably three different teachings of Jesus. First, Jesus talks about two treasures. Then Jesus talks about two kinds of eyes, which in Jewish thinking were more about projecting reality than about taking in information and data and reality, which is how we understand seeing and eyesight. For them, they were about projecting reality. And then Jesus talks about two different masters, and the thread running through each of these comparisons of twos is treasures, money, possessions, wealth. And these things were seen, handled, treated, and the ways that these things were seen, handled, treated were all sort of related. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, vermin, moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And maybe some of the older background for this teaching, this first couple of things, comes from maybe all the way back to Exodus, when the people of God are in the wilderness for 40 years and God gives them manna for each day, bread for each day. On the sixth day, bread for two days, so that on the seventh day they can rest. But each day, his lesson is, trust me, I will provide for you. I've got you. You're covered. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Be careful about accumulating, 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 accumulating. Give us this day our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with planning ahead. There's no reason, there's no reason not to plan for the next day, to think ahead, to have some sort of schedule. But it was the vast accumulation of wealth that Jesus was warning about here. And so it's not don't plan out what you're going to eat tomorrow or what you're going to eat the next week or make sure you've got an emergency fund or anything like that. But rather be careful about accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. Jesus told stories about storehouses, massive amounts of things. But instead store up treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be stolen, that cannot be lost, that cannot be taken from you or from others that will outlive you, that will last forever. Store your treasures in those places, in those ways. Make those things your treasures. But this is easier said than done for most of us, for most people. In the words of New Testament scholar Douglas Hare, one of the most noticeable characteristics of the human species 
is its or our proclivity to collect things. Anyone here a collector besides me? Over the course of my life, I've collected marbles, matchbox cars, Legos, books, on and on. What have you collected? We had this human proclivity to collect things. Humans everywhere collect treasures that we assign status to one another on those treasures on the basis of what we or others have acquired. In some societies, one is judged by their livestock and others by the possession of precious metals or rare stones. In a money economy where we live, the acquisition of financial assets becomes the primary goal for anyone who aspires to a higher status, for most of us. Once achieved, this higher status is then often displayed through or as cars, homes, clothes, jewelry, big boy toys, and on and on. Hare writes, and then both the one who has and the one who doesn't have get sucked further into the false notion that a person's worth and value are somehow connected to the things one has, and for some, the things one doesn't have which is a false notion which Jesus rejects vigorously, but which I, and maybe you, repeatedly get sucked into. It's almost human to want more. It was the super-rich John D. Rockefeller who responded when asked, how much is enough? His response was, just a little more, just a little more. Some of us grew up on the game Monopoly. I spent most of the summer between fourth and fifth grade playing Monopoly with my brother and sister. What does that game teach us? To acquire and to gain, and the one with the most money and the most property and the most things and the most stuff wins. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of this world, and Jesus wants to liberate his followers and his students from the traps of the world, from that prison, and from the anxiety that go along with it. And with having one's value, worth, esteem tied so closely to what one has and what one possesses and what the other person has and what they possess, there's nothing inherently or necessarily wrong or bad or faithful or ugly or messy or disobedient or whatever about having wealth except all of the dangers associated with it, all of the risks associated with that, Jesus says, the danger of inseparable attachment to such things or obsession with such things because Jesus knew and Jesus taught that where one's treasure is, there one's heart likely will also then be. One's heart tends to follow one's treasures, though it's also true that one's treasure can follow one's heart if we follow Jesus in that. But it so often may involve divesting oneself of one's treasures on earth and investing in heavenly treasures. Remember, Jesus says a person cannot serve two masters. Either she will hate the one and love the other, or she will love the one and hate the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. At the end of verse 24, the Greek text retains the Aramaic word mammon or mammonas, which simply means possession or properties or wealth, sort of pretty straightforward. But the Greek text retains the Aramaic word in order to demonstrate that there's more going on here. It's a personification of sorts of that idea of wealth and money. In some English translations, still, you may have grown up hearing that word, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Some translations over the years, English translations have actually capitalized that word. It's not capitalized in the Aramaic or in the Greek, but capitalized it to identify it as a sort of God. Moreover, a person can serve cannot serve both the one true God made known to us in and through Jesus and also serve the God mammon. And Jesus doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say that to do so is unspiritual to serve both God and mammon or God and money. He says it's not possible. It's not that it's unspiritual or unbecoming. It's not possible, Jesus says. And so perhaps nothing so quickly tells us about a person's relationship with God as a person's relationship with money, wealth, possessions, stuff. And if I was honest, and I want to be honest, I have to say that this is a struggle for me. I've always been a saver. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and i've always been a saver i remember very clearly as a little bitty kid i had this glass piggy bank a glass piggy bank odd and uh for some reason only pennies went into it uh but over the months and years, one could see the pennies accumulate. And when you're a little kid, pennies are actually, they're money. And so that full piggy bank of pennies sat on my shelf in my bedroom as a kid. And then when I sort of outgrew that and had more than just pennies and sort of moved into the realm of nickels, dimes, and quarters, somehow I was given or came across this mechanical round metal bank for lack of a better word. I don't know if anyone else ever had one of these. And you could put coins in it and then pull this lever and it would sort of eat up the coin and then give you this mechanical addition of how much money went in, knowing by the size of the coin and it would add it all up. Did anyone else have one of those? You still have one, that's how you save. Way to go, Tasters. Fantastic. Nickel at a time, John. Keep. And then I could see how much money I had. And then when I sort of outgrew the uh, little mechanical metal bank, I said, Mom, I want to open a bank account. share or earn and spend, but earn and save. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If a person wants to put their treasures into investments that will truly bear long-term gains, invest in things and in people that will last forever. And it probably doesn't take a lot of effort to figure out what that might look like and how might one might do that. I have these friends, their names are Bill and Kay Lawrence. I wish I had a picture of them to put up on the screen. Uh, Bill and Kay as newlyweds, young couples in their 20s, moved from California to Mexico, Ensenada, where they began working in an orphanage for children who otherwise had no hope, no place, no family, no resources, no nada. Then after a few years of that, they came upon this opportunity. Someone came to them to acquire a former pig ranch that was no longer being used if they used it for God's treasured kingdom purposes. And so they, with the help of a bunch of other people, acquired further down in Mexico, out in a deeply rural area south of Ensenada, a former pig ranch. And then one by one began taking in children from the neighboring little towns whose parents were alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes and whose parents discarded these kids if they even paid attention to them at all. Kids who had learning disabilities, emotional disabilities, anxieties of a variety of sorts, who even if they could get into the public school and had someone to shepherd them through that process, couldn't survive there, and who often ended up on the streets. And Bill and Kay, they're in their 70s now and officially retired. But over 40 years, poured their lives into children that had no opportunity, that no one was paying attention to, who were just street kids without love, without hope, without resources, without breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and took them in and one by one and by one built home after home after home, after home on this former ranch for pigs, which they affectionately came to uh, call the Palace of the Pigs. And then they started a little school, which became a bigger school, which became a bigger school, which became a regional school of hope, where kids could come and be loved and shown the kingdom and invested in eternally. Where are we storing up treasures, our treasures, the treasures that God has entrusted to us? I shared some Richard Foster last week. Here's more. He writes, We must clearly understand that the lust for our affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. Again, happy day today to you for the sermon on money. 
It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need or enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. Where planned obsolescence leaves off, psychological obsolescence takes over. We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to step out, to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick oneself. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves. He continues, the modern hero is the poor child who becomes rich rather than the Franciscan ideal of the rich child who voluntarily becomes poor. Hmm. He continues, before attempting to force a Christian view of simplicity, it is necessary to destroy the prevailing notion that the Bible is ambiguous about economic issues. So often it is felt that our response to wealth is an individual matter. The Bible's teaching in this area is said to be strictly a matter of private interpretation. We try to believe that Jesus did not address himself to practical economic questions. However, no serious reading of scripture can substantiate such a view. The biblical injunctions against the exploitation of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and straightforward. The Bible challenges nearly every economic value of contemporary society. He continues, Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day. Jesus spoke to the question of economics more than any other single social issue. If in a comparatively simple society our Lord would lay such a strong emphasis upon the spiritual dangers of wealth, how much more should we who live in a highly affluent culture, surrounded by million-dollar homes, as we are, take seriously the economic question? What do I do with that? One Sunday morning, a mother went to wake her son for church. Get up, Bobby, it's time to get up. Hearing nothing, she knocked on his bedroom door and received the following reply, I'm not going today. To which the mother replied through the door, what do you mean you're not going today? Why not? I'll give you one good reason, he said. I don't want to hear the sermon. His mother then replied, well, I'll give you two good reasons that you will get up and you will go to church today. One, you're 47 years old. And two, you're the pastor. <laughs> Preaching on money isn't always fun. But if we want to have or experience the sort of good life that Jesus described as a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, their way, then we have to listen to what Jesus says also about treasures and wealth and possessions and money. And we must be prepared to think again, think differently, think anew, reconsider, change our way of thinking, change our lives, change the trajectory change our mentality, repent, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, the reign of God, the dominion of God is all around us and available and accessible. This thing that Jesus talked about has arrived. 
16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money. One out of 10 verses in the New Testament deals with the subject someone has tabulated. Scripture often about, offers about 500 verses on the subject of prayer. Fewer than 500 on the subject of faith. More than 2,000 on the subject of money. We get stuck, I tend to, some of you may tend to, on certain issues and topics and themes in our culture that may intersect with our faith. Themes, topics, subjects that are rarely spoken of in the scriptures, which are replete with talk about money and wealth and possessions and finances and the stewardship of such. 15% of everything that Jesus says relates to money. He talked more about money than any other topic except the kingdom of God. More than all of his teachings on heaven and hell combined. Why did Jesus put such an emphasis on money and possessions? Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Randy Alcorn writes that we try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. In my first call, that's like the church theological term for job. In my first call out of seminary, I was in conversation with the church and we both agreed this seems like a fit and lined everything up and I moved out to Southern California from New Jersey without even really knowing what my compensation was going to be. Somehow I missed that. It was actually, turns out, that the last page of this, some of the documents was where that stuff was and it got left off in the video or in the uh, Xeroxing process and it just sort of never came up. Which I could do when I was young and single and owned a bike and a 10-year-old car that ran pretty well and a bunch of books and really had no debt and a couple of hundred dollars in the bank and that was all good. When we moved out here, it was a different story. I was married and older and had three little kids and possibly, hopefully another one or two after that. And the price of housing was four times the community or the neighborhood from which we were moving. And so I had to think about all of those other things as do you, as do we. How are we going to pay for the things in our lives? Where will that money come from? And how to find the balance? I'm not really sure. Or at least I struggle with it. Maybe you do too. And maybe that's good. There's a human part of me that always wants just a little bit more. Even though I know that enough is never enough. So the remedy, or one of the remedies to slay the god Mammon, who is always doing battle 
with the one true Lord. It's to give things away. It's to find ways to practice detachment. It's to recognize the schemes of the devil. Not that money's bad, but the love of it might be dangerous. And so we need Jesus' instruction on how to possess money without being possessed by money. We need help to learn how to own things without treasuring them. We need the discipline that will allow us to live simply while managing great wealth and abundance, which we all have. The average one of us, the average American, is in the top maybe second percentile globally in resources and abundance and wealth, regardless of kind of where we fit into the American system or how much we compare ourselves to others. In 1928, a group of the most successful financiers in America, at least, met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. The following were present. The president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear in Wall Street history, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Collectively, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was in the U.S. Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the nation to follow their examples. 25 years later, this is what had happened to these men. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died broke. Yeah, that Charles Schwab. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died abroad insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served a term in Sing Sing prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. The greatest bear in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, also committed suicide. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Druger, committed suicide. All of these men had learned how to make money, but none of them had learned how to live with it according to the kingdom of God. Stock markets rise and stock markets fall. Elon Musk, hey, he just set a record as the first person ever to lose $200 billion. The head of Evergrande in China, his wealth has decreased over the last couple of years by 93%. How must that feel? For those of you who invested heavily in Bitcoin, Lord have mercy. May our investments and our treasures and our wealth and our possessions, the things that we have, the things that we own, be invested by God's grace with his help, with the prompting and the teaching of Jesus in things that will last forever. And may our investing in those things help us to get to a place where our treasures lead our hearts or our hearts lead our treasures so that God's kingdom will be manifest in us.
and his joy will be ours, and it will. Let's pray. Many of us, God, have things to confess outwardly, inwardly, certainly to you, sometimes to one another in this area and on these subjects. We struggle with answers and clarity. We want and we have needs. And you have provided daily bread and much more. Lead us in the area of the things with which you've entrusted us. Help us to be faithful and to find joy in that. Put within your people a healthy detachment from the things that lure us into worship, false worship. May there be joy among your people in generosity toward you and toward our neighbors and to those without. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Amen.